0: Good evening to you, John chapter 20 this evening, I want to look at a little meditation out of that passage. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles with Bibles right now and you just wave to them and they'll get a Bible into your hands this evening. John chapter 20, verse 19, and then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, a Sunday, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Tonight we are uh, assembled together on the evening of Resurrection Sunday, which is the same context of the events that we just read about in these few verses in John chapter 20. I think it's interesting to realize that the first Sunday evening service in the history of the church was on Resurrection Sunday Sunday. Sunday that Jesus rose from the dead. What does that teach us? Never miss a Sunday night service. <laughs> you never know what the Lord is going to do anytime his people are assembled together. We notice the condition of the disciples, of the apostles, in verse 19. We're told, physically, they're in a room somewhere in the city of Jerusalem. And It isn't unlikely that they are in the very room, the upper room, that Jesus had washed their feet and spoken to them and partook of the Lord's Supper on the night before his crucifixion. There are ten of the apostles there. Of course, Judas is not. He is dead at this point in time. Thomas is not present. There are other disciples that are a part of this gathering of uh, disciples Then there are the two men who had met with Jesus on the road to Emmaus earlier uh, in the day, and so they're all clustered in this room. I I think about, (laughs) you you know, if you want to envy anyone in the whole Bible, uh, you can envy those two men on the road to Emmaus, because as they were spoken to by Jesus on that road, given probably, well, without a doubt, the single greatest Bible study in the history of the world as Jesus spoke to them from the Law and the Prophets how he was the fulfillment of those Old Testament Scriptures even in his death and his burial and his resurrection. They're so excited that they didn't spend the night in Emmaus. They raced all the way back to Jerusalem to meet with the the apostles, not having any idea that Jesus is going to appear a second time uh, in that room, and they're going to have the blessing of having uh, seen him twice on the day of his resurrection. Now, that upper room would have been a hub of activity all day long. And the, the closest thing that I can probably liken it to would be a breaking news story related to a major network, how they just bring all of the anchors on deck, and they've got all of the charts, and they've got the everything. I mean, everything just ramps way up when some gigantic thing is happening, and all kinds of activity begins to happen, and that's, that's happening in that upper room. The latest reports of Jesus' resurrection are coming in from every direction. Mary Magdalene comes in in the Morning, and declares the fact that she has seen these angels and declared to her, Why seekest thou the living among the dead? He is not dead, he is risen. And and how she then met with Jesus. Jesus met with her personally. She races back to the apostles, tells them of this report. uh, Peter and John then race to the tomb to become witnesses themselves of the empty tomb. And then Jesus appeared to uh, Peter privately, we know from Luke chapter 24. And then now these two excited disciples come in breathless from Emmaus with the same report. So that's what's happening physically. And emotionally, despite the fact that all of these reports are coming in of Jesus' resurrection, the atmosphere isn't one of hope or isn't one of excitement. Instead, that room is just dominated by one great emotion, the emotion of fear. The fear is so great in the disciples that they have locked the doors Uh, to the room, and they've kind of barricaded themselves in, so to speak. And we know what the cause of their fear was, and the cause of their fear was the Jewish religious leaders because in their minds they had to be thinking if the Jewish religious leaders were successful in the death and the burial of Jesus himself securing his crucifixion, then surely it wasn't inconceivable that they would want to wipe out every witness to Jesus and who would be the next a group of people that would be on that list except the apostles, so they had to feel that they were kind of under siege and and that they might be arrested and killed as well. And so they're hiding for their lives. And you're hiding for your lives every knock at the door, and they had multiple knocks on the door there. Mary Magdalene, again, others coming in, going out. But every time somebody knocks on the door, they don't know whether it's a friend or it's a foe. Everybody tenses up. And are we going to be arrested? Are we going to get another report? concerning Jesus. And so they locked themselves away in this room for three long days since the day of Jesus' crucifixion and when most of them had abandoned him out of fear for their lives at the site uh, of the, the, his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane and later within a stone's throw of, of the cross itself. Spiritually, they're in a very, very low, low point here. And because even the reports of Jesus's resurrection, it didn't seem to make a dent on the fear that was uh, gripping them. And so all of the all the times that uh, that were, people were coming in and giving this report, that it wasn't allaying their fear and even despite the fact that jesus had said to them many many times before his death and his burial that that would happen to him he would be beaten he would be maltreated by the religious leaders of the jews he would ultimately be crucified but he also told them that he would rise again and so They kind of believed all of the bad news uh, parts of the event, but they failed to believe that that wasn't going to be the end of the story related to their lives. And they forgot about uh, the resurrection or they had put it uh, out of their mind. And I wonder if there might not be some of us here tonight that are holding on to some fear that needs to be swept away by some promise of God. It's amazing how long we can hold on to a fear in our lives. And Jesus has given us some promise that addresses that fear just right, right between the eyes so that it wouldn't even have a moment's place in our hearts. And yet sometimes we can give it that place despite a promise that the Lord has given to us. And so that's the emotional and the physical and spiritual atmosphere that Jesus entered into when he uh, appeared to the disciples in that room. And his appearance is really a marvel. And it really has something to teach us as well. We're told in verse 19 that uh, his concerning Jesus' access into the room, that he came and he stood in the midst. So everything's all locked up, bolted, everything. And then he just stands in their midst. He didn't knock. He didn't huff and puff and blow the door down. He didn't ask to be let in. None of those things. He just simply and suddenly, he was standing in their midst. We don't even know how long he might have been in there and remained invisible. And then the next moment, there he is visible miraculously just like that. So Jesus, after his resurrection, his body maintained the same structure it maintained the same outward appearance as it had before, but now it's changed in its essential substance in some way, now a supernaturalized body. It's made for heaven and made for earth. So we remember that he got out of the grave cloths within the tomb. He didn't unwrap himself or anything like that. They just fell right into to a heap in, in that scene. And, and he exited the tomb without the stone being removed. Remember, the angels didn't, like, huff and puff to move the stone out of the way so Jesus could get out. They removed the stone in order to reveal that he'd already risen. That was the whole reason. And so they didn't need, they, he didn't need some exit out of that cave that represented uh, his tomb. And so he then enters into this room without passing through a door, and he could appear and disappear at will. And the reason that's fascinating is that the Bible says that one day we're going to have that kind of a body. The moment of the rapture, when we go to be with the Lord, perhaps individually. In 1 John 3, 2, we're told, Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Philippians chapter 3 for our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body. How many of you know you have a lowly body? <laughs> that he, will, he who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. And I want you to notice in verse 19, Jesus' first words out of his mouth To them was peace be to you. Shalom. He pronounces peace upon them. You might have thought, and they might have thought, that Jesus, when he showed up, boy, are we in big trouble. It's like, when dad gets home, we are in so much trouble. The last time we saw Jesus, we were cutting off ears. He had to rebuke us. We're running for our lives in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then even when all of the women went up close at the time uh, uh, when he's on the cross, the only time he ever needed us in three and a half years, and we stood at a distance. I want to see him again. I don't know if I want to see him again. He's going to scold us. Why, if you guys are friends, who needs friends? <laughs> what a group of losers I picked. Well, gives us hope, doesn't it? The fact of the matter is that Jesus does understand that we're but dust and he pronounced peace upon them. And the idea of pronouncing shalom upon them was to just to let them know everything is under control. And you put yourself in their place. Some of you might be in that place tonight. Everything before he shows up in that room and speaks to them. Their whole world is caving in on them, on every level, on a physical level, emotional level, spiritual level. We've been have we been deceived? Have we been? And then the sorrow and the and their love for Jesus and all of these things. I mean, their whole world is spinning, and Jesus comes in and he has one solution to that, and that is his own appearance to them, and then the pronunci- pronouncing of peace upon them. To communicate that everything is under control. And I wonder if maybe there might be one or two of us here tonight that you need to hear that, just from the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He just comes and just speaks his shalom, his peace upon you, let you know everything is under control. Everything's right in line with his promises related to all of our lives. I like that verse when Jesus spoke in John chapter 14. He said, peace I leave with you, my peace, Now that's pretty good peace, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. So the world gives peace, but it's very fleeting, it's very short-lived, because the world grants us peace for those moments where there is the absence of conflict or the absence of difficulty. Well, those are very, very short periods in life. And God knows that we need a peace that is greater than that. And so the peace that Jesus gives when he says, My peace give I unto you, that's a peace that that exists and stabilizes our life. It's a peace that can stand in the midst of the difficulty and the trials of this world. Now, we know from Luke's gospel that at his appearance, they were stunned and they were terrified, thinking that they had seen a ghost. And so he did a couple of things to ease their mind, we're told in Luke's gospel. He showed them the wounds in his hands. He showed them the wound in his side in order to let them know, no, it's really me raised uh, from the dead, bodily resurrected, and gave him the evidence that, that, he was not, uh, that he wasn't a ghost. Luke's gospel also tells us that he asked them for food. It wasn't because he was like starving <laughs> you know, so he says, I'm dying for a bite to eat, and all the in and outs are closed. Was in a situation like that at all? He asked. For, he asked for food so that he could. They would give him the food. He would eat it, and they would realize that listen, a ghost or a phantom doesn't eat food. A body eats food and processes food, and so they gave him fish, and they gave him some honeycombs. They gave him a little protein and a little dessert. Nothing wrong with a little dessert, by the way. It's right there in the Bible. Now, their response to his presence and to his words, we're told in verse 20, was gladness and joy. And I mean, can you imagine the joy that filled that room in that instant, as here he is, he pronounces his peace, they realize this is the Jesus that we love, that we have walked with for three and a half years, that we know the way that we do. Death did not have the final uh, word in his life, but resurrection did. He lives. Now, you talk about an emotional swing. It can almost be unhealthy. It's a good thing all the disciples were young be like just a free ekg or something treadmill test but here they are i mean they're just as low as a person can possibly be and then emotionally spiritually physically they're just elated to the under, other end of the graph the only thing that i can compare it to in life would be if uh, somebody was uh, wrongly informed of the death of a loved one And then a short time later being informed that a mistake had been made and that their loved one was still alive. That's the kind of emotional swing that went on in that room and all their fears were evaporated. He's right here. He's alive. He hasn't been defeated. We haven't been deceived. Wow. Now, the Bible teaches that the resurrection of Jesus is cause for peace because his resurrection declared him to be the Son of God. It demonstrated him to be divine, God the Son and the Son of God. The Holy Spirit put it this way, Romans chapter 1, verse 4. And Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So Jesus' resurrection verified his claim to be God. I say praise the Lord to that. The Bible declares that the resurrection of Jesus is a cause for peace because His resurrection reveals that man can be justified through simple faith in Jesus. And justified means to stand before God just as if I'd never sinned. Now, that's that's a salvation for me, and I know it is for you. But that's justification. And the resurrection put God... God's stamp of approval upon the fact that man is justified by simple faith in Jesus Christ. Again, Romans, but this time in chapter 4. It, speaking of righteousness by faith, shall be imputed to us uh, who believe in him, who raised up Jesus, our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Praise the Lord for that. Then the Bible also declares that the resurrection of Jesus is a cause for peace. In other words, it reveals that our faith in him for salvation and for forgiveness is well placed, that it's wisely placed. Again, Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, and he said... And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is vain, and your faith is also vain. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. If Jesus wasn't resurrected, our faith would be empty. But his resurrection s- speaks to us that our faith has been masterfully, wonderfully, perfectly placed, and putting our eternity, and the forgiveness of our sins in his hands. And then the resurrection of Jesus is a cause for peace because it's through that resurrection that God has provided mankind with a victory over death. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again or borne us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We need a living hope and God knew it. What's a living hope? It is a hope that can withstand this enemy called death. And, and it is the hope that God has provided us with through the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. And the reason that Jesus could give everlasting life is because he defeated death. You've got to have everlasting life to give it. You can't give what you don't have. And Jesus had it through his resurrection. We say praise the Lord for that tonight. And then finally, the resurrection of Jesus is a cause for peace because it's a guarantee of our own future resurrection into heaven. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, knowing that He, that is the Father, who raised up the Lord Jesus, will also raise us up with Jesus. Now that's absolutely terrific. It is the assurance. Again, as we saw this morning, our resurrection into heaven is as sure as the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And you know, as we speak about all of those things, those causes for joy, those causes for peace in our life as a result of the resurrection of Jesus, I love all of them. I love all of the theological significance of Jesus' resurrection. The Bible says that we are to love the Lord God with all of our heart, all of our emotion, all of our mind, all of our soul, and all of our strength. And I love to worship the Lord and looking at all of the theology and the teaching and the revelation and going as deeply into it as we possibly can with whatever our mind allows us to do. I love all of that. I really, really do. But what I love most about Jesus' resurrection is that my life has become a personal witness to His resurrection. And someone might look at Jesus' appearance in that upper room 2,000 years ago and might smack their lips and say, Oh, I wish I could have a revelation of the resurrected Jesus that was as powerful and as wonderful as the revelation that they had. I'll tell you, I read those verses. I marvel at those verses. I glory in those verses. I am so happy for them, all of them, for that experience. I never read that passage with an ounce of envy in my heart. I am never envious of their experience. I don't think that God's testimony to us of the resurrection of Jesus is at all inferior to theirs. And what is that testimony? It's the personal, daily witness of the Holy Spirit in our lives to Jesus' resurrection. We sang the song during the offering this morning, and, that, and I'm not going to sing it for you. I serve a risen Savior. I mean, I'm a good Irishman, but I can't sing very well. And, but we sang it, and I love the words of it, so um, I'll, I'll just I'll wrap it for you. No. <laughs> I'll just read it for you. I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that He is living, whatever men may say. No one can tell me anything different concerning the resurrection of Jesus, not only on the basis of the witness of the Scriptures. I love the witness of the Scriptures. I love the witness of the Holy Spirit. But you cannot move me from the truth of that resurrection 2,000 years ago solely on the basis of the change that the resurrected Jesus has produced in my life and in your life. There is no other explanation for our life except the fact that He is risen and He lives inside of me and He lives inside of you. This isn't mind over matter. See, this is the problem with legalism. Is legalism turns us into a place where Christianity becomes this works kind of thing and we never ever fall come into this then it's all our effort it's all our everything and we never come to realize that the miracle of what we're becoming has nothing to do with us but it has its only explanation is in that jesus is risen alive and living inside of us and and it is it is this kind of faith relationship with jesus that allows us to realize this is not mind over matter do you know how weak my mind is This is not determination to change a life and to change the motives of my life and the direction of my life, the interests of my life, the actions of my life. I could do that for about 36 hours and then fall in a heap as a complete failure. No, no, no. The fact that you and I have the will to do and the power to do of God's good pleasure Coursing inside of us every single day is our own personal witness to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Well, we may not get through this song if I stop every line like this. You see why it means so much to me. I serve a risen savior. I'm starting again. That causes some of your, your hearts to sink. I serve a risen savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is living, whatever men may see, say. I see his hand of mercy. I hear his voice of cheer, and just the time I need him, he's always near. He lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives, salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. And I know there are a lot of theologians today that they kind of poo-poo this song. They wouldn't, they would not allow it to be sung, perhaps in the, their churches. It's too subjective a witness. Don't take that witness from me. I want the witness of the scriptures. I want the witness of the witnesses. I want all of that. But don't take this personal witness away from me. I don't say it's the supreme witness. I just say it's very, very important to me. And so this witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that is in each and every one of our lives that knows the Lord. And I want us, as we partake of the Lord's Supper tonight, I'd like us to just stop tonight, and maybe it's been a while for you, and, and uh, as we partake of the Lord's Supper, and just think about your salvation story. Every, every salvation story is different And then there's a sense in which every single one of them is exactly the same. The Apostle Paul told his salvation story, his testimony, repeatedly. It's recorded in the book of Acts. And it's essentially made up of three parts. What I was before Christ, how I came to Christ, and the life that I've been living ever since. That's our testimony. And every Christian has that testimony. And sometimes it's good just to stop and think about what I was before. Don't stay there too long, but just enough to appreciate the miracle that he did in your life and then how he brought you to himself and the stories that are represented in this room. Just amazing. And then the life that we've lived ever since. I remember when I was a brand-new Christian I'd get up and I'd have to be at work early at the phone company. And so I'd make my Eggo waffles and a cup of tea to start the day and all. And uh, B.J. Thomas had all kinds of gospel albums at that time. And I had like three of them. I think he only had three at that time. I'd put the headphones on so I wouldn't wake everybody else up in the house. And I'd begin the day by plugging into the headphones, giant headphones. You'd have thought I was a pilot. And... Uh, in there, And I'd listen to both sides of B.J. Thomas singing about this Lord that I love so much now before I would head out to the day. But we've all got these little stories like this. And it's good to stop and to remember that salvation story. And then to give the Lord the praise and the thanksgiving for our salvation this evening just to bless him. And so this is our little upper room here. It's only one story. Our lower room. But here we are, same resurrected Lord is present with us and living inside of our hearts. What a witness that is, a living witness. And to just thank him tonight. Lord, thank you. This is what I once was. This is how you saved me. Oh, I see the tender care that was involved in all of that. And then, Lord, I praise you for the life that I get to live now. And we're going to open up the trays and put them in three different tables here, so that as Kit leads us in worship, you can come up and take the bread and take the cup and partake whenever you want to partake of it. And maybe you might want to have someone that you're even sitting with in the service, and you want to partake of the Lord's Supper with them. Or maybe there's someone clear on the other side of the room, and you say, I'd love to partake of the Lord's Supper with them. The whole room is open for you to use, to just be led of the Spirit, to celebrate Him tonight, to give Him praise, and to give Him thanks tonight. And so uh, these these will be opened up, and then as Kit leads us, we can go ahead and partake as as we, as we feel led. If you're here tonight and you're not yet a Christian, it would be good. We're going to have pastors and some chairs along the back. And if there's anything you need prayer for tonight, any any, any fear in your life that hasn't been, you know, knocked out by some promise of God. You say, I don't know the Bible enough to know a promise. Could you give me one? They're there to help you. Or if you haven't received the Lord yet, they'll pray with you tonight to begin that relationship with God tonight. However you might need them tonight, they're for you. Sometimes the world's a very, very lonely place We're scattered all over the world in the United States. Here we are in Modesto and our closest relative is a four and a half hour plane flight. You say, I just want, I just want to know, I want to have somebody pray for me. They'd love to pray for you and minister to you tonight. And so if Kit would come forward, we'll just worship the Lord, give him our praise and give him our thanks for our salvation this evening and for how good he has been to each one of us.